0: And welcome back tonight on this very special episode, which is happens to be our Christmas special. We have Mr. David Petruja with us. Mr. Petruja, thank you for being with us. Good to be back. So tonight we're here to talk about the Christmas truce. So can you just tell us a little bit for starters about what that is and what caused it?
1: Well, we're talking about the Christmas truce that occurred spontaneously and really it's inaccurate to call it the Christmas Truce okay. because it was a series of truces that broke out spontaneously on the Western Front in France and Belgium, actually mostly in France, um, in December 1914, So, and, and along the British Front largely, not so much among the French Front, facing the Germans. And as this was the first Christmas, the first December of World War One, the war was supposed to be over by Christmas, which was not, you know, now we know. Hindsight is wonderful. It wasn't going yeah. to happen. They didn't know that then. And if you take a look at some of the uh, wars in the 19th century in Europe, they were over very quickly. And in ni- in 1870, the Germans had swung by and captured Paris very quickly in 1940 the same thing was going to happen, so in 1914 was the outlier where they didn't make make it. They had a plan which was to swing through Belgium and France, capture Paris, knock France out of the war, and then turn back on Russia because they were fighting a two front war. Didn't quite happen. They got stuck. There were 300 miles of trenches going from the North Sea and the English Channel to a Swiss border, and they would be stuck there until 1918. Um, it was a pretty m- miserable way to die and a pretty miserable way to live. When things weren't—when you weren't charging out of the trenches into machine gun fire and being massacred probably 15 steps out of, out of your trench, uh, there would be massive artillery bombardments. Or in nineteen fifteen, this hadn't quite happened in nineteen fourteen, but you would have poison gas, which would which would blind you, maybe permanently. Uh, flamethrowers. Christmas Eve or Christmas Day nineteen fourteen was the first German air raid on English soil. Um, so a pretty miserable time. And but Christmas is coming, and it was still a Christian society on both sides, and both in terms of, of the Catholic nations and the Catholic peoples and the, and the Protestant peoples. And there was a new pope in town, I think it was in September, where Benedict the fifteenth, not the 16th, was, was installed into the papacy, and very early he called for a Christmas truce. Uh, on the night the angels sang on Christmas Eve. And the Germans um, very quickly say, yes, we'll do that. We'll do that, but only if you guys do it. And the British say, well, we will defer to the French because the fighting is taking place on French soil. And the French, who are mightily ticked off about the Germans invading their country again, um and and also you know having a very secular government remember how they you know with the uh, notre dame cathedral yeah what just happened and and uh, the burning of it the fire and and the church doesn't own that cathedral the government does the government does what's up with that well that's how it <laughs> was in france you know the the vestiges of the french revolution and all that so so they say no and in the united states there was a, a a senator, a United States senator who proposed a 20-day uh, truce. He put a bill through, or a resolution through in Congress, but that didn't go anywhere in, in the Senate. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Carnegie was a big peace advocate, was opposed to it. He said it would be unchristian to stop the fighting and then have to start it up again. He walks to the White House in the snow yes. uh, to petition Wilson for it, but for some reason— Wilson is golfing in the snow. This is this is the one naturally. part of the story I don't quite understand. Naturally, naturally, he's golfing out in the snowstorm, right? So <laughs> uh, anything to get out of out of work, I guess. Uh, yeah. So so it the, it's been proposed um, leading up to Christmas, and it's been suspected by the British High Command. There's a there's a general uh, who. Uh, Issues a warning on the 5th of December against fraternization, against something like this breaking out and and how this would be very dangerous to morale when you have to start killing again. And he's not some major blimp type of guy. He's been through Congress or or combat. He's been in the Boer Wars. He's been in very heavy fighting. And ironically, you know know how they always say it's the generals who, who really hate war the most you know yeah. guys like eisenhower and and they really despise it and he gave a talk at one of the british military schools um at, at the outbreak of war saying how stupid and pointless and awful this was going to be and how this would break you know uh, civilization and the students were like they were all you know they're their stu- they're students pardon the expression but they're students and they don't yeah. quite know everything yet and they're thinking this is horrible how a British general would, would would talk against this great crusade against the Hun. But, but, you know, he was right on that. But he issues this warning, and there actually will be some mini-truces breaking out on the Western Front in advance of Christmas. And, of course, there have been truces all throughout history, uh, the truce of God, the peace of God in the Middle Ages where you would have uh, you know, you wouldn't go breaking into a church or a monastery. You might not hit a merchant. You might not—you uh, wouldn't uh, fight on this day, on this feast day. Then you wouldn't fight on Fridays. Then you wouldn't fight on Saturdays. So that by the time that was over in the Middle Ages, you could only fight 80 days a year. There were truces in, like, the Civil War, the Crimean War. Uh, but this, this tr- Christmas truce is is very special in World War One. In part because it's so modern and close to us, and because it's so unlikely and almost the stuff of movies. Yeah. Which is usually the stuff of nonsense.
0: <laughs> who was the senator, by the way, who tried pushing it through? A fellow named Kenyon.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making this up. Oh, okay. He was, no, a fellow <laughs> named Kenyon. He was uh, from Iowa. He had voted against arming the merchant ships when Wilson wanted to arm the merchant ships in anticipation of World War One, So he was one of those guys that was on Wilson's list. But then he did vote for war. He oh. was from Iowa. He was a big prohibitionist, I think.
0: Yeah, maybe a long-lost relative of Could mine. Could be, yeah. <laughs> so we talked about how, like, Carnegie went to go see Wilson. There was the whole entire thing with the Pope, the new Pope, and the new papacy. What was it kind of like on the ground for troops that were involved in this?
1: It's, it's bad, and it's particularly bad in the British sector, because of the topography, the water table is very high in northern France, and I've seen two different figures as to where it, it starts. In other words, you dig down and you hit water. It starts to, to flood in. And on the, I've either seen a foot or three and a half feet. Now, most British soldiers, even then, were taller than three-and-a-half feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're digging down below that to keep from getting your head blown off. We haven't mentioned snipers. Snipers are a big factor in, in trench warfare. So you've got to hunker down and keep down low. And this means that the uh, uh, trenches are flooding, uh, that the casualties in November and December of 1914 are more so, because they've dug in and the offensive uh, nature of warfare has stopped momentarily, uh, you're going to have more soldiers dying from pneumonia and from something called, which is trench foot, where you've spent all this time in the water, your feet are cold and wet, and they turn into gangrene, and you might be uh, have your foot amputated. So very bad stuff then. What does happen around the um, Christmas time, just before Christmas 1914, is you get a freeze, which ordinarily would be bad, but what it does is it freezes all the mud. It freezes all the water, which actually makes circumstances much better uh, for you, and, and people could would then be able to go out into the trenches if you weren't about to get your head blown off.
0: Yeah. So, kind of like when did they start getting news that this would be possible?
1: I guess when it happens. Oh, seriously. So like- <laughs> because because it it happens person by person. It starts individually almost. In night at Christmas Eve, what happens is that the Germans have been provided with gifts by their government. The British have been provided by gifts from their government and by, you know, families as well. Um, But the German government has provided, oh, cigars to the officers, pipes with a a picture of the um, Crown Prince William Wilhelm to the uh, NCOs, and Christmas trees because Christmas trees are German institution and tradition and uh the british on the other hand are given oh uh, boxes little tin boxes from the royal family and you see ads in the british newspapers for something like a hickory farms gift box to be sent to the boys in the front okay (laughs) so they are awash in 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 gifts they're giving out cigarettes in lots of a thousand to the british soldiers OK, so they've got all this stuff. They don't even know what. What are you going to do with it? I mean, you're in this flooded trench. What do you what do you do with all this? Uh, no idea. All you know, this stuff. Um, so you're, they're going to find something to do with it very, very quickly. But those getting back to those Christmas trees. So the Christmas trees are going to be lit on on Christmas Eve. The, the British who are not quite into the Christmas tree tradition yet being not being German take a look at, at these lit trees um, across the way and wonder what's going to happen. Is this uh, a trick? Is this some sort of an attack coming, a nighttime attack? They don't know. And, but um, they, the next thing that happens is they start hearing hymns. Now, been, they could hear. You know, they might be 100 yards apart, these trenches. They could hear the people across no man's land. And, but, but the singing really starts to break out from the German side. Generally, it's attributed to, and it's difficult to, to generalize, because this is happening all along that, that, that British-German front. And the Germans start to sing Stille Nacht, i.e. Uh, Silent Night, the original Austrian hymn. The British are going to recognize this. They're going to answer back in English And then you're going to hear the things going back and forth. So, oh, come all you faithful, the British will be singing, and the Germans might be singing Adeste Fidelis in Latin. It goes back and forth and back and forth, and night falls. And nothing much goes on before that, but it really sets the table for the next day. And one by one, soldiers will come, will stick their heads up above the trenches, always dangerous, And some will walk across no man's land, approach the other side. And and it appears that it's usually the Germans who are doing this, that the initiative is taken by them more so than the British and will maybe just say, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Or they might have uh, an agenda, which is to bury the dead. There had been truces to bury the dead even the french and the germans were were doing this and, and you would see this in in previous wars because you know you'd have hundreds thousands of these these soldiers just laying there rotting and and they had to be uh, recovered at some point but this would not translate into any fraternization what is going to happen on christmas day 1914 is is the the fraternization of You know, not just peace on earth, but goodwill towards men.
0: Yeah. So you keep on hearing about one thing with these is how they basically grow across. Was there any sense of suspicion or anything when they first start coming across to each
1: other? There is suspicion, and it doesn't always go well. Some guys do get their heads blown off, and some guys will get their heads blown off later or towards the end. But by and large, uh, after the initial wariness um, it, it 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 all works out also it seems to start with the men in the lower ranks the enlisted men and then the officers will will show up and it's like what what are you blokes doing and and uh they will be won over uh there's there is one uh, fellow named Sir Edward Hulse who is a captain who comes upon his men doing this and his story is is very well known because um, it's documented with leathers that's the other thing um, as as fanciful as all these stories seem to be they're very well documented and they're documented in leather's home and people's remem- reminiscences afterwards and also in photographs cameras were banned on the uh, on the front the soldiers were not supposed to have them but you know, Many things are banned in life, and and yeah. it goes goes by the books. In fact, the the um, incidence of uh, photographs bears on the prolonging of the truce. It's not just Christmas Day; it will go on for several days afterwards. In some cases, it goes on until New Year's, and the story is at least you know at one point in on the front. That uh, they're waiting for the photographs to come back <laughs> to be developed, <laughs> so they could they could see what happened uh, there. Um, so there there's so Hulse comes upon these these fellows and and gives his permission. His his uh, commandant or commander who is much rougher, a very uh, tough disciplinarian. He will come across this, and you think he would pull the plug on it, and even he doesn't. So it goes it goes fairly uh, high up among the officer class as well, which is why they can't discipline these guys afterwards because so many people are involved. So many people... Yes, well, uh, earlier in the month of December was the birthday of Kirk Douglas, 103 years old. Uh, and he did a movie called uh, Paths of Glory, which was about the French discipline in World War I in 1917 when guys don't go over the trenches... And some guys are just picked out arbitrarily and and shot by the by the French high command, which is which is you know most unfortunate. It's a great movie. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but there were too many people in the British ranks to 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 make you know examples of everyone. And if you made examples of them, the thinking went, you just advertised that this thing happened. And if you advertise it, maybe it would happen again in 1915 and onward. Uh, so there, So Hulse is approached at one point, Sir Edward Hulse, this Captain Hulse, is approached by a German soldier who says, uh, you know, I was in Britain during the war or before the war. 80,000 Germans were working in Britain before 1914. One of them was Adolf Hitler's half brother Alois Hitler, um, who returned to Germany. Many of these guys returned to Germany. Many of them worked as waiters. Many of them worked as barbers. So you will see uh, you will see incidences of German barbers on the on this front during this troop giving haircuts to to British soldiers. You will also um, hear of British soldiers calling out. Um, across the trenches, across no, man land, no man's land to the Germans. Oh, oh, waiter, waiter. So uh, these Germans, A, know English very well. They know German, or they know uh, English customs very well. They have a certain sympathy for the English people, which is one of the reasons why this occurs. And one of these fellows asked Captain Hulse, can you, I have a girlfriend in England. Can you bring a letter to her? Because I'm having trouble getting getting a letter to her. Can you bring this to her? And Hulse is like, uh, "Yes, yes, I, I will do that." He says, and then and then the fellow says, "You know, not only do I have a, a girlfriend in England, I have a motorcycle there too." <laughs> so and and then what happens is a, a a German officer, a fellow named Thomas, last name, comes up to Hulse. And says, um, one of your officers got into, as very near to our front lines, our trench, recently, and was killed. And he fell into our trench. And we have his effects. We have his Victoria Cross, and we have his, his personal stuff here. Could you return these to his family, his next of kin? And uh, um, Hulse agrees to that as well. And then thinks, well, they've given me something. I have to return something to them. And he takes off his silk scarf and gives it to the, this German officer. The German officer thinks he then has to give something back, and sends back to his his personal billet to get back uh, a gift which has just been given to him for Christmas—a bunch of uh, pair of fur-lined gloves. So you see this exchange of gifts. This is going to be very important, as I said. Previously, these guys are awash in all these, these, these cakes and, and um, cigarettes and pipes and every other thing. And they start exchanging these gifts. And not only these things that they had gotten from the people back home, they'll start to exchange military souvenirs. They might start cutting off buttons and giving off parts of their uniforms back and forth One of the more notable incidents of this is that uh, the Germans have these spiked helmets, which are called pickelhauben. And a fellow trades, a German trades one of these to a British soldier for two tins of what is called bully beef, which is corned beef. The Germans evidently don't have this. And once they get their hands on the English uh, corned beef, they love it, just love it. And so they make this trade— but as the as the truce is ending, the German commanders are going to have a full dress parade, and this guy needs his helmet back. And he crawls across no man's land and and says to the fellow who now has his helmet, you know, I need my helmet back. I gotta have it back. Uh, no, no, you traded it. You know, this is you know you can't have it back. No, no, I will bring it back. I promise. And that is exactly what happens. That that is the level of, of trust and uh just human decency which exhibits itself at least momentarily during this.
0: There are also some accounts of stuff just as like games played between the two of them, like soccer or whatever. Are there any actual like records of
1: that? Yes. There are there are a number of games. Um the there's a German or there's a game in particular. There, there, there are a number of them. Usually, the score is three to two for some reason. Uh, in one case, we know a Saxon regiment was playing a Scottish regiment, and the Scotsmen wore kilts, and their kilts would fly up during the game and give the Saxons quite a view and uh, much to their amusement. Uh, well, that game was won three to two and uh, it was refereed by a german officer there was only one game which appeared to have an actual soccer ball the others were incredibly impromptu and you know they're 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 across no man's land and it's you know there's there's shell holes and every other thing and even though it's frozen it's it's not good but they might be using an old tin can as a ball or a, uh, you know, kneaded up a backpack or something like that uh, uh, instead of a, of a ball. So it's very impromptu, and you know there might be sixty men on a side. So it's just a you know kind of a drunken holiday. In in one case, the the Germans roll out uh barrel a barrel of beer uh to share with the with the British.
0: Naturally, I mean, just wow. Now. We talked a little bit earlier about how it seems like everybody didn't really want to pull the plug on this.
1: Was there anybody who actually tried to put this to an end? It's, by that time, Christmas is over. So uh, this general I was referring to earlier, who had issued the warning a fellow named Smith Dorian, is alerted to the circumstance when he's in a meeting in a chateau with his superiors. And it's like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do about this? I'm going to look into this. He he makes a tour of, of, of the front lines to see what's happened, and they steer him to all the places where it didn't happen. So he comes back thinking, oh, this is just exaggerated. This didn't happen. And then when he gets back to his headquarters, he's given a report and finds out that it did. He wants to you know, have all this... Um, discipline but it's just too big to do something about um the germans um find out about it later they kind of find out about it through the british newspapers the british newspapers start printing accounts of this very very early on um but you know it's a fast moving news cycle in world war one there are other things going on you know they're going on not only on the Western Front, but, you know, like I say, bombardments of Britain, the Eastern Front in Africa, you know, on the high seas. So there's always news. So this thing will become kind of forgotten in the public mind fairly quickly. We, it's, it's, It's actually, I think, more a part of our consciousness now in the last 30 or 40 years. It started with a BBC documentary. In 1981, and it's picked up. It's picked up with with a feature film in 2005. Um, books. There was an opera which I saw a couple of years ago at Cooperstown at the Glimmerglass Festival, um, which is which was so absolutely beautiful and moving that I was I was just a wash in tears after the first act. I mean, I was just breaking down. Okay. Yeah.
0: So why do you think they forgot about until this BBC documentary came out? Was it just kind of just.
1: It gets lost in the shuffle. I mean, there's like, what, 10 million dead. Yeah. You know, there's just so many things to there's a Bolshevik revolution, (laughs) you know, empires collapse. It's it's a it's a small thing. I think I think it's gift. And and it's it's really quashed so in nineteen fifteen, if if you try it, and very few guys will try it because of, of all the horrors which have intervened, where the fighting gets even worse in nineteen fifteen, that the feeling is not quite so chummy that year.
0: Yeah, I mean it just keeps on getting worse and worse as it goes on. But you can kind of also argue that World War One was more consequential than World War
1: Two. In a way it is, because it because it gives us World War Two. Yeah, and thank God World War II did not give us World War III yet. Uh, <laughs> it ain't over till it's over. Um, but uh, you know the empires do collapse, and 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 the seeds of World War II are are set, and uh, it's just um, it's really the twenty-year truce, as they say, from 1919
0: to 1939. Yeah, I mean it's kind of it's kind of interesting you look back on all this, but like we see kind of how this only happened as most people know, between the British and the Germans. Did this ever happen between any other two countries or it was just the British and the Germans?
1: There are isolated truces on the Eastern front between the Austro-Hungarian forces and the Russians. Uh, at Easter, at Easter, which actually makes more sense because the Germans and the Austrians and the Hungarians would be celebrating Christmas on a different day than the Russians would be celebrating Christmas. So how would you do that? Okay, it's like, no, that is not Christmas. That is your Christmas. Our Christmas is in January. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah.
0: It would be kind of an interesting conundrum, you would see. Yeah, it's how they would celebrate it on different days. And um I yeah,
1: mean But they're also there's a an interesting story, very isolated, in the Battle of the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bulge in nineteen forty four. Really? It's goes Wh- to World War Two. World War Two. Uh and what happens is um American forces uh, are, are a, a bunch of them are just lost yeah. and they wander into a farmhouse where a German family was. Even though this is Belgium, uh, there's a German family. The father was a baker with the German army and he's away. The mother is there with the children and the Americans come in and one of them is wounded and is is treated and, and she takes them in. What then happens is a German unit shows up knocking on the front door, and these guys are like, you know, up close and personal. There's a war on. And the, the wife, the mother who's running this household said, It's Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas, and you guys behave yourself. And the German unit actually treats the wounds and has, I think, more medicine than the Americans and and then they go off and they go their, their separate ways there there are truces during the Vietnam war christmas truces robert kennedy for example was united states senator from new york in 1965 is calling for for a truce that year and they would have a a tet truce you know in in vietnam yeah. as well the infamous that's a big war. holiday there
0: it's very infamous nowadays
1: yes that didn't quite you know there are truces and there are truces and there are sneak attacks. Yeah, the Tet Offensive. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so I'm gonna sound a little stupid when I ask this, but like, why is it that the Russians and the Hungarians and all those other countries that are, had like the truce on Easter? Why did they celebrate Christmas on different days?
1: It's well, um Think about it that the the Russians were still doing the Julian calendar. Oh, okay so that in 1917 when you start talking about the, the two russian revolutions there's always like two months given for either revolution you know they don't they don't switch over until then how um, washington's birthday in the he, when uh, when england switched over that was when he was a young man so when he was born, it was February, like, 11th and not February 22nd. And then they, they switched the dates over. You know, they switched over because they were losing all these days in the old Julian calendar, and they had to switch over to the Gregorian calendar.
0: Yeah. That's actually kind of interesting.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the or the, the, the Eastern Orthodox Christmas is in, in January.
0: Huh. Never knew that. Yeah.
1: Which is why I'm like, I've I've sent out all my Christmas cards, and there's a fellow I've I've come to know, and he's Greek, and it's like, I'm not gonna send it out this early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it
0: might still be Thanksgiving season.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So what were the main, um, like afterwards you started to hear, because some of the reports I've read of this is that sometimes soldiers who were involved in this truce would kind of like on purpose shoot up to try to avoid hitting the British that they were interacting with. Right. How much truth is to those? Yeah, that's
1: true. The the 107th Regiment, Saxon Regiment, and the, uh, when I say Saxon, you know, Germany was a kind of federal state. Yeah. Prussia was the big— <laughs> Prussia was like the California <laughs> of Germany, okay? And Saxony was a kingdom, and often there was not particularly great blood between the Prussians and, the, you know, the other uh, parts of Germany, or the Bavarians, the Southerners, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this 107th Saxon Regiment, They are told to start firing by their sergeant, and they refuse to. They absolutely refuse to, and it looks like there's going to be a a strike, and he's going to, like, start to shoot, you know, maybe his own men, and he doesn't know what to do, where that will lead. And they finally, okay, okay, strike's over, but they start shooting, and it's into the air. It's into the air. Um This is not always the case. A few days, like maybe Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, there's a British sergeant named Collins who goes across to the German side, and he's bringing cigarettes because, remember, these British have a thousand cigarettes and jam. He's bringing jam, and he leaves it off with the Germans, but before he makes it off, a German sniper shoots him dead, shoots him dead, and uh, so it's it's going to start off in a very ragged way. But for a while, the the two sides are fighting, um, you know, shooting into the air like a big show because it was like, well, they expect us to fight. We'll pretend to fight. But one thing you can't do so easily to have this pretend war, this phony war, is artillery, okay? Uh. The artillerymen have been not on the front lines. They're way back. They haven't been part of this. And so they are ordered and they will lay down these big barrages. And it also takes only a few of those snipers to knock off your pal before you start knocking off the other guys again. Yeah.
0: So how does this like whole entire story end? Since we're coming towards the end of this interview? How's this whole entire story? end for everyone
1: it ends by starting up the war again it ends day by day and unit by unit and the high commands of the of the countries decide this shall not happen again because it can end not only just the war it can end governments yeah in 1917, there are big revolts, as I mentioned, among the, the French units. There's, there's really mutinies to stop the war. In 1918, the Germans come out of the war and the German Empire ends because the naval units revolt. They refuse to go out to sea again, to get their heads blown off by the British troops for, for, for no—British Navy by, for no good purpose— and, of course, the Russian units are going to uh, end it all. So it's really the uh, revolt, as opposed to World War II. This really doesn't happen among the, the frontline soldiers in in World War II as much. It does happen in World War One, But, you know, they had been through so much. One of the more startling stats I came across was, Fifty-one percent of all French soldiers were wounded. Fifty-one wow. percent. I mean, it's just amazing, and uh, the the scope of death. There's more front or uniform combatants killed in World War One than World War II. So it ends. It ends by this war going on forever until. 1916 or 1918 where he, and and the battles which go on and on forever with this stalemate uh in the trenches which is not going to be broken one of the, oh one of the uh aftermaths of it is is Winston Churchill not yet the prime minister of Britain that's World War II but involved in the fight uh comes up with a couple brainy ideas to you know, break the deadlock uh, in uh, in France. One of which is to employ tanks, huh. and everyone goes, "No, that's not going to work. It will work eventually. Uh, it will be a, a big factor in 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 pushing the Germans out of France." And the other idea he has, which is it maybe his worst idea ever, is to attack Turkey to open a second Gallipoli. front, Gallipoli. And that, that, that comes as an a- aftermath of that. If we can't if we can't break through here, we're gonna break through there.
0: Yeah, he was kind of kicked out of government for it.
1: Yeah, he had a lot of downs in his
0: career. Yeah, a lot of downs and then some pretty big ups for a few years and then they kicked him out and became prime minister again. He he really had a roller coaster career. Yeah,
1: he's a he's an amazing guy.
0: Yeah, so we're about at the end so now of the interview. Do you have a favorite little like factoid or story that came up
1: during this whole entire Christmas truce? Well, I think the main point of it is that it's the Christmas truce. It's not the holiday truce. Yeah. It's not the, you know, winter solstice truce or anything like that. It's it's the Christmas truce and it was it was animated um by a still Christian faith um, among the populace of the the peoples of Europe, which unfortunately is sadly gone by the books. Yeah. So on that note, (laughs) hopefully the faith shall rise again. Maybe. Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, Mr. Betrugia, thank you for coming on, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right.
1: And to everyone out there listening, have a Merry Christmas yourselves.